Uh, it's lovely to be with all of you uh, tonight. Uh, thank you for coming, and a very happy new year to those who haven't seen uh, for a little while. I want just to remind you about uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we are studying at the moment. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount uh, is from, starts in Matthew 5. It goes for three uh, long chapters. Uh, I have been finding it revolutionary, uh, and I find myself increasingly captivated by the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, he paints such a vivid, audacious, colorful, revolutionary picture of what it means uh, to walk with him, to become his apprentices, apprentices uh, to live with him, uh, to live for him. If you remember, it starts, uh, as Duncan was saying, with the Beatitudes, where essentially what Jesus does is he, he, he gets some signposts out and he bangs them into the ground and the signpost points to blessing. Uh, but he says, we'll find blessing in the most unexpected places, the places we never thought to look. So we'll find blessing in those experiences where we feel poor in spirit, where it feels like everything is falling apart. We'll find blessing in mourning as both we mourn those that we love uh, who have died, but also when we uh, mourn uh, our own uh, sin and greed and selfishness, and as we mourn uh, the sin and the greed of the world. There will be blessing in being peacemakers. There will be blessing in being meek, in humility, in being people who don't need to uh, rule the world and rule every room uh, that we're in. So that's how he starts. He starts with blessing, then he talks about faithfulness, what it means to be a faithful people, people who live out uh, his word. And he takes us through some of the really key uh, things in our own lives, you know, what it means to love the people who hate us or who are awful to us, what it means uh, to learn to look at other people lovingly and respectfully rather than to undress them uh, with our eyes. He talks about uh, what it means uh, to be people of our word, to be people of integrity. And then there's, a, then there's a pause, and we're just at the end of the pause. And the pause comes when Jesus outlines, in a sense, the three things, the practices, the things that we can do that will power this kind of incredible revolutionary life. And the three things that are in the power and the power room of Christian character catch us all by surprise. If you ask most Christians and most people outside the church and you said to them, what are the, what are the things that you really need to live a Christian life? They'd probably say going to church that would be the top of the list. Going to church doesn't get on Jesus' list. The three things. He's audacious. He starts with giving. He says, if you want to have your Christian life powered, if you want to know the power of the Holy Spirit in transforming you as a person, the first thing you do is you give away generously of all the things that you have. Your time, your finances, your gifts. You give. And you don't expect to become a hero when you give. The second thing that he says is that you spend time as often as you can with God by yourself. 
That's not coming to church. That's within our own life. We find time, ideally every day, when it's us and God. No one to impress. No one uh, to watch us or judge us. Just us pouring out our hearts to God. And powerful, real things happen when we just set aside time to be with God in that way. The third thing is even weirder. The third thing is fasting. Now, already some of you are thinking, what on earth? But I'd like to explain very briefly tonight why fasting appears in Jesus' engine room of the Christian life, how it's important, how it's been misunderstood, and how we can begin uh, to use it. Uh, many, many, many English Christians have never fasted. Most English Christians have heard someone from the front, normally with a collar, say it's important to be generous with your money. And most English Christians have heard uh, somebody talk about the value of having time set aside with God. But very few of us have uh, thought very hard about fasting. And that's what I'd like uh, to do with you in the time that we have. Jesus says, uh, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. So in this engine room discussion, he's talking about the three things that we can do, and he assumes that we are going to be doing those things. He, he commends them to us. He doesn't technically command them, but he does commend them to us. And he says, look, when you pray, here's a pitfall to avoid, but also here are really good things uh, to remember. And for each of these three things, he talks about the fact that there will be a temptation to show off, and since to draw attention uh, to ourselves. And with fasting, the temptation in Jesus' culture seemed to be that people wanted everybody else to know they were fasting. And so what they did, as Jesus describes it, is they disfigured their faces to show that they're fasting. So the, the, the response that they wanted was to be walking down the street, and they looked terrible and a bit tired and a bit haggard, and someone would stop them and say, hey, are you okay? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm not too bad. No, no, are you, are you really, are you okay? They go, well, you know, been fasting for a couple of days. You know, it's getting a bit much for me. And by that, they're able to broadcast what wonderfully superior religious people they are because they're doing something great and sacrificial for God. And Jesus each time says, if you, if you go down that route, there is a reward. People will think in a certain way about because it's not the reward that God wants to give to you. Now, in our own culture, uh, we're probably not going to disfigure our faces. I think our culture, we'd probably choose to brag about what we're doing. So we'd have hourly updates uh, on our social media uh, or uh, other ways in which we're letting everybody know uh, that we're fasting at the moment and how difficult it is and how hungry we are and how much we want to have that slab of chocolate. But Jesus says there is a different, less showy way to give, to pray, and to fast. And that different, less showy way is all about us and God. It's private. It's underground. It's secret. 
There's just an audience of one. It's me and the Father. As I seize the opportunity uh, to immerse myself in ways that I can meet with my Father quietly, without other people judging or watching, without the added confusion of other people. And Jesus says there are great rewards in doing this. They won't necessarily be seen straight off, but there will be great rewards, and those rewards will be better, much, much, much better than the reward of other people hearing us pray and thinking, oh my goodness, Simon prays so beautifully. Or other people understanding or realizing how much we give away and thinking, wow, what an amazing person or other people knowing how much we fast and thinking, wow, we must be really holy. There are greater rewards available. Now, I asked myself the question this week, well, why do so few English Christians fast? Why is it that it's not part of our church culture? Well, I can find two reasons. Uh, the first one is fasting is difficult. And we don't like difficult in our culture. Uh, we like things immediately. This is a fast food culture. So we like our food fast, but we also like our spiritual life fast. So we are suckers for things that are going to change our lives instantly. And you only have to be on the internet for about 20 seconds, and somebody will be selling you something that is going to change your life almost instantaneously. And Christians are massive suckers for this. And so we fall for all kinds of things that promise easy, cheap, ways to instantly boost our relationship with God. Fasting does not fit into that category. Fasting is countercultural. It's difficult. It's audacious. It's revolutionary. And many of us just don't like it. Don't think we can do it, so we just don't do it. Secondly, we, we do have a, a, a kind of folk memory in England of how things used to be. And uh, in the medieval period in our country, uh, the church was a complete mess on this issue. And so the, the church would force people into really rigorous and kind of rule-bound fasting. And it kind of enforced that on the entire community, but often with terrible results. So during Lent, for instance, in the medieval period, uh, what happened was you were not allowed to eat meat. And so that was great news for fishermen because basically British people ate fish uh, during Lent. But because the fish was caught at the coast and brought in, the fish had to be salted to preserve it. So people were eating lots of salty fish. Now, when you eat lots of salty fish, you get really thirsty. And the brewery thought, hang on a minute, this is a great opportunity. So they produced lots more beer during Lent for all the thirsty people that were eating all the salty fish. And so what happened was, lots of people got really, really drunk during Lent because they were eating all the salty fish. And so, the church has started off by saying, don't eat meat for Lent, it's good to fast from meat. It ends up with historians saying, Lent was riotously drunken. People were fighting each other, people were falling out with each other, people were getting completely off their face for Lent, for Jesus, for God. And it kind of, we all feel, I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about when he was commending fasting. And of course it's not. 
The second beautiful thing, if anyone has traveled in France, you might have been to a cathedral in a place called Rouen, and Rouen has a cathedral with two big towers at the front. The tower on the right-hand side is called the Butter Tower. This is how the Butter Tower was paid for. Absolutely classic a piece of entrepreneurship by the French church. Basically, they, they said, French church said, you can't eat butter during Lent. You've got to fast from butter, okay? So everyone's going, oh, it's really hard not to eat butter for 40 whole days. So then they say, okay, we understand that it's not very easy to abstain from butter for 40 days. So if you pay us some money, we'll give you a written dispensation. And the written dispensation will say that Simon is allowed to eat butter this Lent because he's been so generous to the church. They were raking in the money and they built this enormous tower at Rouen. It's called the Butter Tower. You can see it. It was built by the church saying, you can't eat butter. Oh, you can eat butter if you give us lots of money. And then they built the church. That was not what Jesus was talking about when he said we should fast. So it's not surprising. So we kind of have a memory that the church has been rubbish at all of this. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't fast. It just means that we should learn what the Bible says about fasting. Fasting is commended in all parts of the Bible. Here's a little list of people that we know for sure fasted. Moses did. David, Elijah, Esther, Daniel, Anna, who saw Jesus in the temple, Paul and Barnabas when they were thinking about uh, the church's first missionary journeys, and of course Jesus, who we know for sure began his earthly ministry with 40 days of fasting, uh, and we can assume included fasting as a regular part of his own spiritual life. Now a key text in the Bible is Isaiah 58. And that shows that the Old Testament prophets already understood very clearly that fasting could be abused, just as it was in the medieval church in England and in France. So in Isaiah 58 we read, on the day of your fasting, you exploit all your workers. On the day of your fasting, you strike each other with wicked, feast, with wicked fists. So in the Old Testament we see very clearly that they understand that fasting that seems to be something that is done exclusively for God actually can be a cover for being an absolute prat. And, and the, the prophets say, it's just, that's not on. If you're going to fast, it's got to mean something. It's got to have integrity. In the Bible, fasting is understood as not eating food for a period of time. Uh, for as little as one meal, uh, sometimes longer. And it's really important to clarify in our culture what we mean by that. Uh, so firstly, fasting in the Bible is not something that you do to lose weight. Now, fasting, it turns out, but particularly something intermittent fasting, can be a really good way uh, to lose weight. But that's not the fasting that, that Jesus is talking about or the Bible is talking about. In the Bible, you fast for other reasons, not primarily uh, to lose weight. Now, if you want to lose weight, and that's right for you, then that can be a good way of doing it, but the primary purpose of fasting is not to lose weight. Secondly, the primary purpose is not political. Uh, many of us, in a sense, will be aware of people going on a hunger strike 
to make a political point, uh, particularly if they feel they've got nothing else to do. Now, a hunger strike may be a valid political, uh, in a sense, strategy to undertake, but it's not fasting. The reason it's not fasting is because it's public. And Jesus says fasting is essentially a, a private matter. So going without food for a period of time does some interesting things. You may never have tried it, or you may never have tried it voluntarily. But here's what uh, the Bible says about it. Going without food helps to reveal what rules our life. Uh, We tend, often, to cover up pain and discomfort and dis-ease with food or drink or with other things that are in themselves good, but aren't actually meeting our deepest needs. When we fast, when we don't eat, say for one meal, what happens is that that comes to the fore, and our body tells us very quickly we want something to eat. Our belly rumbles, and we begin to think, I just can't survive. But of course we can survive that begins to challenge the things that we feel deeply hungry about. Fasting allows us also to express our solidarity with the poor and with the vulnerable, and it increases our gratitude for what we enjoy. Those two things are really important. So it both, in a sense, it reminds us, as we sit in relative comfort, that there are people for whom every day is an experience of severe hunger, but it also increases our gratitude for the things that we do have when we do it properly. Fasting also frees up time for us to be intentionally alone with God. And it it makes possible conversations with God that we couldn't have any other way. So it allows, it creates the space for us to have a conversation with God about the things that we hunger for. And most of us, if we're honest, are ruled by our stomachs, by what we want to eat and what we want to drink. But one of the things, one of the conversations we can have with God as our tummy rumbles because we can begin to understand that there are other hungers that in our culture we have ignored, we have put to one side. We live in a culture where we are often stuffing our faces with food and drink and other things, but we are ignoring other hungers that are much more important both to us and to God. Fasting creates a space us to thank God for the things that we enjoy because that that little moment when we are more hungry than we normally are just reminds us of the massive wealth of things that we enjoy and having moments where we're not eating actually increases our sense of joy and gratitude fasting also creates a space where we can contend with God about the unbearable injustice of our world. 
and we can talk to God about the waste and the greed that we see ruining the world. And that conversation goes much better when we ourselves are hungry. It's just a different conversation with God than the conversation that you might have after a big plate of pasta or a big pile of chips. It just feels differently. And God is able to speak to us in a different way in that moment. We believe that we live in what Jesus described as an in-between time. There was an episode that's recorded in Matthew 9 where uh, Jesus is chastised, he's told off by the religious leaders because his disciples aren't fasting. And that was very much part of the culture of the day. And Jesus says, of course they're not fasting because the bridegroom's here. It's party time. The kingdom is here. But he goes on to say this. He goes on to say, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. And we are in that time. We are in this now but not yet moment. Jesus has come. The kingdom is in play. But the game's not over. We live in a time when we rejoice for the great things that God has done when we look forward to the great and better things that God will do, but we mourn and we fast as a sign that there is still so much despair and brokenness and unhappiness. And we mourn to give ourselves room to pray with God about the things that we are hungry for and the things that he's hungry for. Let me finish just maybe with a little how-to, if you've never fasted uh, before. Uh, this, is, this is what I do, and this is how I have found it's helpful. Uh, firstly, start small. Don't start with three days. Okay, that will kill most of you. Three days, you know, just, you know, don't start with three days. You know, and, uh, you know you, or you'll read some book and it says in the book that, you know, some great spiritual hero fasted for 40 days. You'll have a go at that. Don't do that. Because you won't succeed. Start with one meal. So just miss one meal. I guarantee that two hours after that meal, you'll be so hungry, you could, you'd consider eating cardboard or your fist or a chair or anything so hungry but don't cave in just keep going one meal is a really good place to start be aware of what is going on in your body and in your spirit and remember that fasting allows a conversation with God that you wouldn't have had otherwise then the most important thing is it, fasting is just it's not just stopping doing something but it's making space to spend time with your heavenly father. So if you're going to miss a meal, at the time that you might have been eating that meal, just find five minutes in a quiet corner, whether it's at school or at uni or at home, wherever it is, just find five minutes to sit down quietly where you're not going to be disturbed. Some people write because it just helps to be able to actually write what you're feeling and what you're thinking, what you're praying. Other people just quietly pray out loud. I think it's something to do on your own. It's not something to do with other people because that space allows you time with your Father. 
do that. Don't miss that out. Because otherwise you'll just be concentrating on how hungry you are. Fasting, in a sense, allows you space to have this really interesting conversation with God. Now, some of us should not be missing even a meal for medical reasons. I think you'll know who you are. But God doesn't want us to jeopardize our health through fasting. So if in doubt, don't fast. But the vast majority of us can easily miss one meal or two meals. Lastly, I would implore you to do Lent differently this year. In our culture, and it's a hangover from all kinds of weird stuff in the past, we quite often choose to give up something, often cake, chocolate, to give up something for Lent. And you can, it's sort of vaguely connected in with Jesus and 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, but it's, it's not a particularly biblical or helpful or whole, wholesome way of fasting. Much better way to do this Lent is to say, once a week you'll fast for one meal. And in the space that that gives you, you'll spend some time in prayer, talking to God about the things that you're hungry for and the things that you know he is hungry for. Faithfulness, fruitfulness, justice. That conversation can only happen properly when you've stopped eating food because something changes in you when that happens. So my challenge would be, please, instead of giving up something for Lent, just fast once a week, one meal, and spend five or ten minutes during that time just talking to God. I would say personally that fasting from other things, often people talk about fasting from TV or their phone or their iPad or whatever, I don't think that cuts it, if I'm honest with you. I think there's something about giving up food, not drink, just food. There's something about giving up food that focuses our mind and says, brings our whole body into it. Now, if you're spending too much time on your phone, then there are other ways to sort that out. But I think, for me, there's something about going without food which focuses my mind and my spirit. Now, I have absolutely no idea how this is going to land with you, okay, because... Almost no English Christian fasts on any kind of regular basis. So in one sense, we can be a bit of an experiment. And we'll see what happens if we begin to take this seriously. All I would say on the side of fasting is that Jesus gave us three things. The engine room of Christian character. Three things were giving generously, spending time quietly with our Father, where people aren't watching and fasting. And if you've never fasted, then you've never used something that Jesus thought was incredibly important and powerful and would bring great rewards. So I commend it to you. And uh, come back and very, very quietly, you can tell me in a few months' time uh, whether it's made any difference. Thank you.